Super Talk Mississippi media production. Kickstart your adventure now with a new Gud Golf Cart from Country Carts of Brookhaven. Gud Golf Carts are assembled right here in Mississippi with the best features around. And best of all, they're street legal. Country Carts of Brookhaven, 401 Highway 51 South, phone 601-748-0454. This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Well Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this hump day. It feels a little springy out there. A little. <laughs> Which is not necessarily a good thing considering the weather moving through. Little severe stuff coming through? Yeah, the farther you get to the northwest in the Magnolia State, the more severe the chances. But uh, when the temperature's up like this, that means the energy's up, and uh, that means the severe chances are a little bit worse. Yeah. Well, we're keeping an eye on it. looks like, however, the threat for such weather is mostly concentrated across the northern That's correct. area of the state. So we'll be watching out for that. Some uh, something that just happened a uh, short while ago. Don't know if you saw it, uh, Rhino, but there's um, the Buffalo mass shooter. You remember that 19-year-old? Happened back in the fall, didn't it? Is uh, being sentenced today at a court in New York, the Erie County Courthouse. Ten folks were killed in that shooting, and one of the family members, I believe, in the gallery there, in the court, rushed the defendant. Watching the video of that now, a little surreal to see that in a court. But, you know, how do you fault somebody for that sort of reaction? It's kind of hard to scold or admonish them. I certainly understand and respect the need to maintain order and protocol in our courts. I don't know, though, man, if you were put in that situation and you know you're a few feet away from this person who took the life of a loved one, it'd be hard to hold back. Surprised it doesn't happen more, honestly. Tough deal. Um, meanwhile, across the country, we got train derailments, trucks wrecking and spewing chemicals. We got all kinds of objects flying above us that we don't know what they are necessarily, shooting some of them down. Now we learn that we missed one of them. How does that happen? Well, we, we got it with the second shot. Oh, okay. You got a second shot. 
You reckon that happens if the other side is also shooting at you, though? I don't know if you get a second shot. So that's a little unnerving. But this train derailment in Palestine, Ohio, speaking of unnerving, what if that happened here? could happen anywhere, right? Trains traversing this country, carrying dangerous chemicals? What was this, polyvinyl chloride or something like that? I, that's I, the main one that's getting attention, but I saw a list that was, I think the EPA released a statement that had five hazardous chemicals that have been found on the site. So the stuff is seeping into water. The Ohio River reports of animals, sick, dying, people. Because there's conflicting reports on the cleanup. You have one report that says the cleanup went by the book, got everything out of there, following all the follow-up protocols and everything. And then there's other reports that are saying they just dug a hole and buried what they could and then kind of swept up what they couldn't bury. Hmm. Well, don't worry about it, though, Rhino, because Pete Buttigieg is all over it. Maybe the most incompetent secretary of the transportation in the nation's history. You have to be pretty dang incompetent for your name to even get mentioned, because who else have you ever remembered that was secretary of transportation? It's true. I mean, it's pretty, pretty much an administrative do-nothing job. I'm not even sure why we have one, honestly. Um, well, he's more focused on the lack of diversity in the construction industry. You've seen that. So, does it not feel like that this never-ending, continuous focus on the immutable physical characteristics of people in all factions of society, it just might get us killed? We have a military that spends an enormous amount of time and money on this issue. It is probably more dominant, more prevalent in the consumption of time and resources in higher ed, but pay no attention. Their function is just to, I don't know, educate the next generation of people who will address society's most pressing problems. That's their job. So we have that, and we have, of course, this chess game. I call it a chess game because of the various pieces on a chessboard, and that's how we that's how we staff out our agencies, our agency heads, our agencies. And then we have these huge celebrations because this particular person meets some description, checks some boxes of their physical traits, and we like celebrate that. Not their qualifications, not their experience, not their job performance. That's all we care about. Let's be honest. That's how we got Kamala Harris as the vice president. It wasn't because she was the most qualified. They made it very clear. It will be a black female. Case closed. We're eliminating any other possibilities from consideration. It's... uh. This is going too far, in my view, in that it's, it's got so much focus 
uh, again, it's private sector, it's public sector, and in this case, it's the Secretary of Transportation, who, who's not even been to the scene. And train derailments, I've learned, are a relatively common occurrence in this country. I had no idea. Almost 2,000 a year. Well, that's not fair. It's seventeen to 1,800 a year. Well, that's a lot. Some would say that's almost 2,000, but I'll be more precise. Well, we're rounding above the five. We'll go up. Okay. But I guess the reason they don't make the news is because, generally speaking, they don't result in, in spillage of toxic chemicals. This no, usually did. the only time a train derailment makes the news is if it's carrying livestock or live animals, and then PETA makes it make the news. That's a good point. That is absolutely true. But in this case, I thought Pete loved rail. The whole reason he's got the job. Right. But likes trains. Likes <laughs> trains. That's what he said. Um, this, may, this may be uh, a little radical, but is it just possible that the profile of the people in this area doesn't rise to the level of urgency? I really hate to think that, and maybe I shouldn't even suggest it, but you can't help. You can't help but even but consider it when you look at the history of this administration and its unrelenting focus on these physical traits. So this is a farming community, mostly agricultural. It's just incredible that the Secretary of Transportation, of course we have a border czar who's never been to the border. That's uh, pretty much sums it up right there how silly it is. And you would be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't already know what Janet Yellen's title is to figure it out based on what anything she says. That's true. That's absolutely right. Well, it's disturbing. The The truck accident occurred in Arizona. The uh, An 18-wheeler carrying some sort of toxic chemical as well. I don't think the uh, the extent of that particular mishap is on the level with the train derailment. That's much more serious and affected a much broader area. And then we got a White House and Secretary of Defense trying to explain these objects all over the place. <laughs> Still really no clear, plausible explanation. And our president, I still don't think he's gone before the country that I'm aware of to address this issue. But man, he could tell you that that Republicans are all about ending Social Security and Medicare. He's They're absolutely riding that horse through the entire election cycle. We're going to talk about that as well. I, I caught some tweets this morning from him and old Robert Wright. She's at it again. We'll discuss that. We've got Josh Henriksen, Chair and professor of economics at Ole Miss on at 11.05 to talk about the money supply. Representative Hank Zuber from Ocean Springs at 12.05. We're just getting started here on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. 
Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. My daddy spent his life looking up at the sky. He cussed, kicked the dust, saying, son, it's way too dry. The clouds up in the city, the weatherman complains. But where I come from, rain is a good thing. in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi, on the ceasefire tax line. With respect to uh, my comments about the U.S. military, says, when you talk about our military missing a first shot and hitting the second shot being unnerving to you, that a CN- that's a CNN statement. Don't be like them. That target is not sitting still, and you should feel fine with our military. It is still the greatest men and women in the world carrying out orders from a goofy administration that sleeps with SCITS documents at home. But, hey, they never serve. Feel good about our, your military and their second shots. Be better, G veterans. Well, uh... I, th- I think you misunderstood my point there, and that is these, these aircraft, these sophisticated aircraft for decades have been equipped with guidance systems uh, that direct their ordnance very precisely. This is not like someone's trying to aim and shoot and hope that they've timed everything perfectly. I, it's been a while since military aircraft have required that that sort of precision and that sort of control uh, by the pilot. So that's what concerns me. I, I think you misunderstood that. That, And if the average person out there, I, I believe that I speak for them in that, yeah, our military aircraft have the ability to hone in on their targets, lock them in, and all sorts of sophisticated guided systems that the taxpayers have spent gazillions on. And I'm not saying that's... That would be the wrinkle I would add. Is it, It's one thing to fire a missile in anger and miss, and then fire a second and hit your target, but this was essentially a training exercise. Right. And that sidewinder they fired at it, the first one, that's a $400,000 oopsie. That's two Lamborghinis just splashed into the lake. Yeah, so I'm not... I'm not faulting the personnel. I'm questioning the the accuracy of the systems, of the weapon systems. It's good grief. I don't know that, that the pilot or whomever aboard an aircraft responsible for firing its weapon systems has been required uh, to, to just use their eye, essentially. And maybe with a little bit of help from from scopes and so forth, and in using other tools to try to de- to try to include the speed of uh, your aircraft versus the speed of others versus the height and the time it takes, all that sort of stuff you had to concern yourself with when you were dropping bombs, for example, it's pretty much been ended. And and honestly, my influence there is is. The military itself, certainly during 
the the um, desert storm and so forth. Good grief. Seems like round the clock. We were getting video. You remember it. Video of of uh, our aircraft um, shooting targets with incredible precision. Sometimes it would be stationary targets. Sometimes it would be moving targets. So that's, that's the only comment that I intended to make on that. As far as those who serve in the rank and file in our military, no doubt about it. And I've been very clear, made a distinction about that countless times. Have deep respect for them. I know they're only doing what they're told. My concern, and we've pointed it out, is with the top brass. And they're taking their orders from an administration. Who wants them to act in that uh, way, in that manner? That's my concern. And I think the rank and file will tell you, yeah, we have concerns about that as well. When you see things like privilege walks being ordered at the uh, U.S. Air Force Academy in West Point, having all these diversity, equity, inclusion, and CRT courses and the like. Yeah, I question that. And I understand the students there, they're doing what they're told. That's the tradition and, and order that is required, honestly, to have a functioning military. And this country is the best at it, no doubt about it. So my concern, again, is that it's not just our military. It's our private sector. It's our our monstrosity of government and all of the agencies in government that seem to have more of a focus on this diversity, equity, and inclusion movement than they do their core function. When Pete Buttigieg is out in front of the nation talking about highlighting his concern for the lack of diversity in construction projects funded by the federal government, He's more concerned about that, while at the same time, the folks in Ohio are dealing with a a catastrophic event on the nation's rail systems. That's my concern. You see it everywhere. And again, it's pervasive. It's proliferating every corner of society. It's this march to mediocrity. It's this putting what a person is above who they are. Everywhere. We, we talked, uh, just a, a quick example that comes to mind, we talked a couple of days ago about four students in Texas who applied to medical school, the various medical schools in Texas. Their applications were denied, but, but now research proves that 482 applicants' applications were accepted and they were admitted to the various medical schools, though they had lower MCAT scores and lower GPA, all in the name of inclusion and equity and diversity. That, I term, is a march to mediocrity, where performance is secondary. Quality, results, don't matter. What matters is all of your physical traits. It's happening across this country. Speaking of, I saw, <laughs> I saw where the um, Prime Minister of Scotland, you seen this one, Rhino? Stepped down. 
Prime Minister of, St- of Scotland steps down, and it's over transgenderism. Why is that such a thing? Why does that seem to be just taking over every aspect of society? It's just invading everything in our world, but Scotland's, uh, what's her name, Nicola Sturgeon, she quit. She's enraged about the transgender laws, relaxed transgender laws that allow a rapist to be sent to a female prison. I'm looking at the picture of this person, this rapist. This don't look like a female, not even close. So imagine that. They end up in a female prison, and guess what they do? They rape some more. We've seen reports of transgenders being incarcerated in female prisons and other areas of this country, and they're surprised because some of the female inmates show up pregnant. Unbelievable. So this... You can see in the photos of her, she's shedding tears, resigning. Said can't deal with it anymore. She said she's proud of having been the first female and longest-serving first minister in the country. Of course, the transgender folks hailed the efforts to achieve things like sentencing a male who says they're a female to a female prison. That's landmark. Landmark policy. <laughs> Just unbelievable. She says, does the outgoing Prime Minister of Scotland, says, I have been and will always be a feminist. A feminist. She, she said of her critics, including Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, who accused her of being a destroyer of women's rights. (laughs) I'm looking at this picture. You can't believe it. I can't even figure out which sides are which at this point. I know. (laughs) Because there are people not buying the new Harry Potter video game because they're saying J.K. Rowling is transphobic. I've seen that as well. Maybe that's what he's attempting to do is assuage those fears. Buy my video. I'm on your side. This stuff is nuts. It's crazy. Sick. Coming right back on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. back everyone midday super talk mississippi we are back with you in the element well studios like 
Oh, Joe Biden, Hakeem Jeffries, Robert Wright stirring it up again. Look, I'm a capitalist, but the wealthiest and biggest corporations need to pay their fair share, says Joe. Well, this is one of those concepts where you have to ask someone, define fair. That can be, not can be, it is. It's subjective. What's fair? Now, personally, I wish I only paid my fair share. I feel like I paid more than my fair share. I think a lot of people would tell you that. What's That's fair? why I couldn't wrap my head around liberals and Democrats defending the 87,000 new IRS agents. Well, of course they... Who actually likes the IRS? Who actually <laughs> enjoys handing over money to Uncle Sam for taxes? And How it, and warped is your mind? I agree. And, you know, I think I've shared before that I believe that something driving Democrats to end the gig economy. In California, probably the first, with the most egregious laws, the idea is to force everyone to be an employee. You want to be a subcontractor? Can't do it. you got to be an employee, somehow, some way. And of course, what's really bolstered the gig economy is the rise of these ride-hailing services. A lot of people often is a second job, second source of income. Two, three hours a day or some schedule, limited schedule per week, in addition to their full-time work, driving folks around, making a little money, using their vehicle. Tons of them. Uber, Lyft. Uber Eats. Bring you food. That's another example. Uh, all in all of those services. And or groceries. Instacart and Waiter and a long list. Uh, and it's because of all this technology we have, where you can, from the comfort of your home and your PJs, order you up a full meal or a, several baskets full of groceries. I've been known to take an Uber to the airport, leave my car at the house, instead of parking it there and paying the hefty parking fee, and drive you right up there. Don't have to mess with finding a place to park. Works pretty good. I mean, but that's, and there are tons of other examples of that, as you well know. You wonder how many accidents have been avoided in lives saved because people, prudent people, get inebriated when they're out and they'll use the ride hailing services for transportation rather than getting behind the wheel. Now, a lot of people, unfortunately, are stubborn, as you know. Oh, I can, I got it, I can handle it. They can't even walk. But those are, um, th those are pretty uh, prevalent uses, common uses of those services. And the only reason I'm bringing that up is because they want them to become employees. They don't want them to function as independent contractors. And I do believe the reason is because of taxes. When you're having to cut that check and file those quarterly estimates, which are required of you as an uh, independent contractor, gig, uh, gig worker, as opposed to 
those monies being withheld from your paycheck every pay period, where you tend to get a little numb to it, you just focus on the net pay and don't pay a lot of attention to all the various deductions, including taxes. But when you've got to do something more proactive and write that check, stick it in the mail, it stings. And then you get a little bent out of shape about taxes. I honestly believe that's one of the reasons they want to convert everybody to an employee where their taxes are just withheld as a routine part of their pay. Uh, the whole idea of Joe Biden saying pay their fair share, that's infuriating to me because, once again, statistics don't lie. And these are straight from the Department of Treasury, 1% of the income earners in this country, the top 1% of income earners, they shoulder 42% of the tax burden. 10% shoulder about 49% or so, top 25% of tax of income earners. They assume the burden for 78% of income taxes paid to the federal government. But perhaps the most revealing statistic is that half of taxpayers shoulder 98% of the burden. The bottom half of income earners pay 2%. Someone please explain to me how that could be characterized as, quote, fair, unquote. What's fair about that? 51% of the households in this country paid zero income taxes last year. 51%. There's about 120 million households. Half of them. Zip. Hmm. But that's fair. If you ever ask proponents of higher taxes, such as Joe Biden, what should it be? They really can't tell you. You won't get a consistent, straight answer. It's because they're afraid of being truly honest. <laughs> I think you're right. What should it be? Because the number they would really want would not be politically expedient. That's exactly correct. Now, a lot of times... Because they would state, well, if you have a billion dollars, you don't need that. That's true. We'll just take 99% of it, and you're still well better off than I am. Which, of course, is the government... Picking winners and losers. Uh, that's that's brazen socialism. Because what's socialism? Its goal is to equalize economic resources and wealth. Take some from this group, give it to that group, make it a little equal, a little more fair, as they would term it, such that there's no incentive to excel, to produce. That's they just don't get that, and where that where it's been tried to just tax and confiscate wealth through the years in other countries, it's been abandoned abandoned because it was an abject disaster. So now, what we're hearing out of Joe? Oh yeah, let's get to yeah to 
to Joe with respect to inflation. So we got the inflation data yesterday. Didn't talk too much about that on the program while we were at Carter Jewelers, but the key takeaways are that month-over-month inflation was basically flat, but year-over-year came in hotter than expected, indicating that all this action by the Fed in increasing interest rates, which is designed to destroy demand, reduce demand, ain't working. Retail sales came in today a little hotter than expected. That's the good news if you're selling stuff. But it's bad news from the perspective of of, uh, lower interest rates in our future because the Fed sees that data and says, yep, got to keep the pedal to the metal, keep on raising interest rates because these folks are still buying too much, too many people working, they got to lose their jobs. They got to spend less money, lest we will not rein in inflation. That's how that works. We'll, we'll talk to um, Professor Hendrickson about that as well today. But here's what Joe said Today's data shows annual inflation falling for seven months, real wages for working Americans up over that time, and food and gas prices down getting breathing room to families. Who feels like they're getting breathing room? All the while, unemployment stayed at its lowest level since 1969, and job growth remained resilient. So there's all kinds of untruths in what Joe's saying here. I don't know if I'd call it untruths. Let's just say failure to include other meaningful, critical details. So while it's true that real wages have increased, they're still lagging inflation. So when your wages go, we've talked about this before, wages go up 5%, yeah, your wages increased, and and inflation goes up 8%. Where Joe's wrong is that the difference between those two numbers is the definition of real, not nominal wages. Real wages down, meaning you have less purchasing power, even though your wages or up from a just an absolute dollar value perspective. You made $10 last year, you're making 11 this year as an example, but the cost of everything went up by two bucks. He fails to, to share that little detail. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are back with you in the Element Well Studios. Just saw a report that a student in Clinton was arrested this morning after a gun was found inside their vehicle. That's about all the details we have. Parents were notified through a message 
from the Clinton High School administration. Most of schools, of course, have these electronic systems that can uh, send notifications out to teachers who have registered their phone numbers, uh, pardon me, parents who have registered their phone numbers and so forth, whenever something rises to this level of concern. That's all we know. So, just back to this situation with respect to... Well, we had a question on the ceasefire oh, text line. Sure. That, uh, on the face of it, it kind of makes sense until you dig down into it. Mm-hmm. It's for Mike and Madison. He says, what if we went back to the tax rates we had from the mid to late 50s? We had a thriving middle <clears throat> class under those policies. Which, yeah. on the face of it, yeah, that sounds great. We were have a we did have a thriving middle class in the 50s, especially in the United States, after the baby boom or right in the middle of it. And the only problem is if you implemented those tax brackets based on those U.S. dollar values, you would cripple the current middle class. Well, because the tax brackets back then. They were stair-stepped about every, what, two to $3,000? And once you got up to $50,000, it was 75% tax rates. Yeah, there was a, there was a time when, um, I don't remember the exact period, it was, I think 91% was the top effective rate. It's, it's a great question, and there are a lot of nuances and details associated with that. I, believe it or not, I wrote an article about that and did some detailed analysis. It's been about five or six years and the other thing you have to keep in mind is that nobody paid those tax rates. Those tax rates are published as the official effective tax rates. And it, and it has to do with um, the way income was, uh, or, the, or the consideration of income, the definition of income. And it's, it's, it really is a fallacy when you look at it. Nobody paid those tax rates. Uh, you're right. Inflation is a big a big part of that. The other thing is, middle class is a moving target. Yeah. And if you look at the the middle class today, or middle class then would be the poor today, honestly. So that uh, more people have moved out of the middle class middle class upward. This is what the left ever wants to tell you, which is one of the reasons that middle class has shrunk. We have a lot more people whose income is above what is traditionally defined as middle class. And I, I can't remember the exact widely accepted definition, Rhino, but it's like you take the median household income, and I think anything from half to that to two times that or three times that, any income in that range yeah. is considered middle class is what comes to mind. Like it's a pretty wide band. I That's think right. the most recent... Using the most recent information, it'd be like forty-three to forty-four thousand on the bottom end. Yep, up to one hundred and thirty thousand. That sounds right. Yeah. So I think maybe it's double the median household income because in the country right now that's about seventy-two grand. So, yeah, that all sounds right. But it's a it's a fallacy. It's a ruse. Whenever you hear that argument, it doesn't really hold any water because it it it's not an apples to apples comparison. And uh, I'm looking for the article I wrote right now, because I did a bunch of research on that, and, and down to the U.S. Treasury data on who paid what at the time. But when you look at all the deductions that were in place, there was a lot. You talk about loopholes? Yeah, the tax code was riddled with so-called loopholes back then. And everybody that made enough money at a gross value 
to uh, fit in to be taxed at, one, at that high effective rate. They all figured out a way around it because of all the so-called loopholes. So people weren't paying that, uh, and that's that, that really is just a fallacy. It's a ruse. The bigger question is, why? Why, why do we want higher taxes? Why do we want to pay more taxes? Why? How does someone believe that that produces just like economic bliss? Oh yeah, people just pay more taxes, <laughs> things would be better. Because all that happens is the people at the high end of the scale that pay the most taxes, they don't get any more benefits than the people at the low end. In fact, many times less. Now, Elizabeth Warren likes to argue just the polar opposite. Well, they're the ones that use all the services. They use the roads. <laughs> I've seen her say that before. Because they've built these businesses that rely on the roads to transport their goods and deliver their services. Just really incredible uh, when they apply that sort of logic and everybody says, yeah, well, that makes sense. They're using the roads. they got to pay more taxes. Incredible. We're taking a break right here. It's top of the hour. Fox News, Super Talk News coming up. Josh Hendrickson, chair and professor of economics at uh, the University of Mississippi, up next. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We are back with you from the Element Wealth Studios. Josh Hendrickson, Chair of Economics, uh, Professor of Economics at the University of Mississippi, now our guest. Good morning, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. So we wanted to talk to you today about the uh, the concept of money supply and how that might be impacting our wallets, how that might be influencing inflation. We were just discussing in the last hour the latest CPI report uh, for the month of January, released yesterday morning. Uh, month over month, came in level about where most analysts and economists were expecting, but on a year-over-year basis, came in a little hot. The market wasn't quite sure how to digest that report. It wasn't as expected as you were aware. And then this morning, we get news that retail sales rose by 3%. That came in a little higher than expected. And the Fed and the Fed board and Chairman Powell, I think they're scratching their heads trying to figure out what do we do here. <laughs> we have, uh, we've uh, pumped rates up pretty significantly over the last year. But we're really not seeing any, any marked uh, control of, of inflation, certainly not in line with their 2% target. Investors, I think, still are optimistic that we'll see a pivot later on this year in the rates. I don't think so. Uh, with that as a backdrop, I'll ask you to explain the money supply, the different categories of money supply, and how this figures into our daily lives. Yeah, so... As economists, we usually just kind of focus on 
broader measures of the money supply. Um, so like a prime example is something that's called M2. Uh, and that just kind of includes a broad spectrum of different types of money. So currency, your checking account, bank, you know, savings accounts, uh, CDs, things like that. And the reason that we look at those things is what the Fed actually is adjusting when they're doing all these asset purchases that they do is they're just adjusting, you know, currency and bank reserves. And sometimes, you know, the increase in bank reserves is because, you know, banks want to hold more reserves for whatever reason. And so if, if that's the case, when you look at these broader measures of the money supply, you don't see any kind of increase in the money supply. But if they're kind of creating too much money, if they're creating too many reserves, then you'll see an expansion of these uh, broad measures of the money supply. And I think that if you think about what's going on now, uh, a lot of it is due to what they were doing during the pandemic. And so during the pandemic, uh, they were really committed to trying to make sure that their own policies wouldn't make things worse. Um, and so they started going out and buying a lot of assets. And if you look at broad measures of the money supply, we saw unprecedented growth in the money supply. So the idea that we've had inflation uh, in the aftermath of that unprecedented uh, increase in the money supply is not surprising. Uh, we saw money growth get to about 25%, which is like the highest in the post-war era. I mean, to put this in perspective, the high inflation in the 1970s, uh, money growth was only around 10% back then. Hmm. And it was 25% uh, during the, the pandemic. And so a lot of this uh, inflation that we're experiencing now is as a result of that dramatic increase in the money supply. And so just to clarify for the audience, Professor, uh, when you stated to the, that these actions of, of pumping up the money supply, the bond buying by the Fed and, and all of these other uh, bills that were passed, which essentially just distributed money out to the population, the policy specifically they were trying to uh, I guess mitigate were those where they were locking up folks, <laughs> basically, and and uh, just to clarify that's what you're talking about. Where we were telling people to stay home, don't work, and and really shutting the economy down to a great extent. Yeah, and so on on the aspect of this that pertains to the Fed. I mean, one of the things they were concerned about is that there was a lot of uncertainty in the economy. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about how long these lockdowns would last. And, you know, Fed policymakers were not making those policies. And so one of the things that they were trying to do is, like, normally during periods of uncertainty, banks want to hold more reserves. And so they were kind of going out there and buying assets to supply the banks with reserves. Um, but the growth in the money supply suggests that they were – doing way too many purchases, that they were purchasing um, way too many assets. They were increasing bank reserves by way too much relative to what banks wanted to hold. And so banks are going to find things to do with that money, right? They're going to lend it out. Um, but there's also an aspect of this in the sense that the assets that they're buying are U.S. Treasury bonds. Right. And so the government was sending checks to everybody, and they're paying for these by issuing treasuries. <laughs> and then the Fed was going out and buying the treasuries. Print money, and so right? That, Printing, ordering the exactly. treasury to yeah. print the money, essentially to buy those yeah, assets. So yeah, so, so I mean, the simple way of looking at this is like, yes, the treasury was sending out the checks to people, but uh, the treasury was kind of paying for this uh, 
by the Fed creating the money and buying these bonds. <laughs> so. Just a shell game, essentially. Yeah. And, and, obviously, and so when you have this increase, yeah, you're going you're gonna to see higher prices because what do people do when they get these, um, these checks is, uh, you know, during periods of uncertainty, people might just hang on to that money, you know, just in case, you know. But, um, but if, you know, you're, you're increasing the money supply by too much, what happens is like it sort of makes people feel temporarily wealthier. So they go out and they spend the money, and as they spend the money, that just leads to higher prices. And that's precisely what happened. I, I describe it as just dropping money out of helicopters, which is essentially what happened, because it wasn't money that was produced by economic activity. It was fabricated, essentially. And then we just we, we sent it to everybody, and what did they do? They went out and spent money. Some There, there are some reports that say a lot of people paid debt off. Uh, that was a, a, a prime use of that, those funds. But now we're seeing, Professor, an uptick in debt. Uh, consumer debt. People are having to use credit cards to buy groceries, and that you you're aware that the credit card companies track all those categories of activity uh, in use of those cards, and that's disturbing economists. We're also seeing a trend where lots of folks are dipping into their 401k plans to make in, ends meet and paying the taxes when they withdraw uh, those funds. That's taxed as ordinary income. These are all indicators to economists that think we're not going to be able to avoid uh, a hard landing, as it is described. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think kind of the thing that's most concerning to me is that the inflation that we saw was due to this dramatic increase in the money supply. But the contractionary policy that they're following now um, has led to money growth actually now being negative. So now they're pulling money out of the system. And um, typically, money growth hasn't been negative in the post-war period. So the last time it was negative was during the Volcker disinflation. And we know that you know Volcker successfully brought down inflation, but he also created a recession in the process. And so it looks like uh, they're following the same sort of path and that they're going to um, and that they're going to try to uh, bring down inflation. Uh, by engineering another recession. Yeah, I, I think the Fed is at the point where they're not seeing the demand destruction that they anticipated by raising rates, which I think gives them the cover to continue to raise rates even to a higher level. And until they see some sort of retail sales report like we got today that doesn't reflect a, an increase if until they see a decrease of that and they see unemployment reports that show that uh, more job losses honestly and an uptick in the unemployment rate I think they're going to continue to be aggressive your thoughts yeah I think this is my concern if you're thinking about inflation what you really want to focus on is the money supply but there's lags in the effect of the money supply so the dramatic increase in the money supply started in 2020 and once things started reopening in 2021 that's when you started seeing inflation but inflation rose throughout 2021 and then it remained high throughout 2022 and so now that they've started conducting contractionary policy the money supply has started to, to uh decline and so we should expect to see inflation start to come down, but you're not going to see it, you know, for months. So, I, I mean, even if they, so if they just stopped right now, we still wouldn't see inflation come down until probably June or July or August or right. something like that. But what they're focused on is they're focused on this idea that 
uh, I thought died in the 1970s, which is the Phillips curve. And this is this idea that, well, if unemployment is low, that's what's causing inflation. Um, and so they're not focusing enough on the money supply and interest rates. They're focusing too much on looking at the labor market and saying, well, unemployment's low. So, you know, inflation um, isn't going to come down anytime soon. And if that's your focus, then essentially what your policy becomes is the only way to bring down inflation is to make unemployment really high, yeah. which is not, which is a not necessary and um, and B is not grounded in economic theory. So it's ju- you're just going to create a recession and make things worse. They're, and I've said it on the show, they're looking to kill jobs until they see some killing of the jobs. They're not going to relent on um, and hold back on raising rates what it looks like to me. Professor, appreciate you joining us today. Very insightful, sir. Uh, Thanks a lot, and I look forward to talking to you some more. Thanks. See you later. Thanks for having me. Professor Josh Henriksen from Ole Miss has been our guest on The Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Call up Trudy on We are back in the Element Well Studios. Appreciate the professor coming on. So, yeah, that's what's going on. The the Fed is kind of following the old playbook, the Phillips curve, as it is known. And essentially, uh, it's a concept that relates, uh, connects unemployment with inflation. Theory being higher the unemployment, lower the inflation, vice versa. Low unemployment equal high inflation. And... The, um, the thesis there is fewer people working, high unemployment, i.e. high unemployment, they uh, have less money. You have less money to spend. Therefore, demand is reduced and prices fall. Less inflation. One of the problems with that theory these days is even when you're unemployed in this country, you seem to have plenty of money to spend because of all these programs we've implemented through the years. And it's so difficult to get folks to work now. We still have this imbalance of employers seeking workers to the tune of about 11.7 million and only 7 million saying they're out of work and looking. Where's everybody else? Because we still have not returned to the employment levels, the labor participation levels pre-pandemic. But Joe wants to tell you about all these jobs he's created. He ain't done squat. In fact, I would argue he's impeded job growth because of all the helicopter money which we're still filtering through the economy. Still going on. So, the Fed, you got the Fed with monetary policy fighting an uncooperative government with fiscal policy that is antithetical to their monetary policy. 
you got to have some fiscal help. We need some supply side. And that starts, as we've said many times before, with unleashing the vibrant American energy industry. Get out of the way. Put a stop to all this ridiculous Green New Deal climate change ideology. It's everywhere. And it is it is impeding supply. Joe admonishes the oil and gas companies in his in his State of the Union address last week where he said, We're still gonna need it for oh ten years. What a fool. Like in ten years we can just quit the use of petroleum. Well, that's absurd. Any clear-thinking person knows it, and he's, he's chastising the oil and gas companies because they won't go invest more in exploration, production, refineries. Well, no, because it takes 15 years to produce a return on many of those projects. You say we're not going to be using it after 10 years. It's like telling somebody just a couple of years away from retirement, you have to buy a new car. <laughs> I, I shake my head because he does it in such a, what appears to be a sincere, convicted way. Like, he totally believes in all this. It's almost like he's got several decades of practice in the art of lying his rear end off. <laughs> I don't think it's almost. <laughs> I know you always like to preface your commentary and include that adjective, adverb, <laughs> but I don't think it's almost. I think he is uh, hes quite deft <laughs> in that art. I blame watching too much British comedy. <laughs> They try to be a little bit nicer That's with their barbs. You, you must be watching the the House of Commons right <laughs> when, when they welcome the Prime Minister in, into the chamber. That's like my the favorite my favorite show on C-SPAN. Does the right honorable gentleman know he's an idiot? <laughs> so formal, so respectful. <laughs> oh gosh. I did find my article that I wrote about uh, the taxes in the 50s, and it's, it's kind of interesting. I, when I looked at it, I, I couldn't find the exact year uh, that I wrote it, but it, it, it done some, like I said, done some research on that and just share with you a couple of things that I, I found out. So in 1958, the top effective tax rate was 91%. Applied to all income over 400,000 k for a joint filer and 200 k for single. There were, as you pointed out, 24 brackets. 24. What do we have now? Five, I think. That was one of the... We went from 24 and then through the years it's, it's changed quite a bit. But the Trump tax cuts, I think, took us from seven to five, if I'm not mistaken. Because, in fact, I'm looking at this article, and I can't figure out when I wrote it, but uh, it was seven at the time I wrote it. So that was before 2017. And the, uh, let's see, there were 24 brackets starting at 20% on the first $4,000. You, you must be looking at it. Oh, yeah. Joint income. So the tax code of that era 
as I suggested, was riddled with loopholes and deductions that make those today, as I said in my article, look like petty cash. And the most popular, I remember this now, looking at my article, was the deduction for losses for passive investments. Virtually every high-paid doctor, lawyer, professional, because think about our society back then, those generally were the occupations that made the most money. You couldn't be a a TikTok influencer and make lots of money like no. today. I just dreamed that one up. But it's true. You think about all the occupations today that generate lots of income. But back then, it was pretty limited. Well, first, we didn't have that many jobs, different jobs. Not nearly to the extent we have today. That's just a function of, of technology and innovation, which has diversified our economy into things we never even dreamed of back then. So the highest-paid Americans at that time had interest in real estate to produce tax losses, but a positive cash flow. And I can tell you guys, I remember back in the 80s, when very few people back then could operate or even understood what a spreadsheet was, an electronic spreadsheet, back in the early 80s. And I would be engaged, <laughs> this is crazy, I know, but back the, in those days, by CPA firms to help build what-if models, sensitivity analysis for their clients, for their wealthy clients, for tax planning purposes. They'd come to them and say, this was a common thing back then, Rhino, look, my kid's going to college. Rather than paying for dorm rent or apartment rent, I'm thinking about joining up with somebody else and buying a piece of property, and I'll house them in that, and I'll get the, the tax benefits of, of uh, all the non-cash expenses, depreciation, and so forth, because it'd be considered a business asset, but I'll actually produce a positive cash flow. But it'll have a, a, a negative effect or a positive effect on my taxes in negating the tax liability. That was a common thing. And I used to build models, and they'd stand around me. You know, I'm 25 years older or what it was, and they'd stand around me like, How do you, okay, if I did this, that, and the other, because you didn't have pervasive electronic spreadsheets like this, like we do today. But the point is, that was very, very common. It was Ronald Reagan in 86, when he signed the Tax Reform Act of 86, it limited losses on passive investments. That was one of the one of the keys. So, reduce the tax rates, but limited the deductions. That was part of the goal was to get rid of all these crazy loopholes, but reduce the tax rates to try to simplify it. And then the other thing was taxes, for example, for Medicare. You know, we all pay a tax in our payroll. Well, guess what? You didn't have that then. You know why? Medicare hadn't been invented yet. People forget that. And when it was, it was like 0.5%. It was nothing. So was Social Security, OASDI taxes, that is called. We also didn't have the gigantic welfare state that we had today. Medicaid came about in 65. And then finally, there were no child tax credits, no EITCs. Exemptions and deductions were totally different than they are today. Bottom two-thirds of taxpayers paid 29% of total taxes. We just reported from straight from the Treasury, half 
half, not 29%, half pay 2%. We went from 29% being paid by a quarter of the people in the country to half the people paying 2%. Unbelievable. And then you also, there was a lot of other taxes that you didn't have back then as well. Coming right back on Midday, stay with us. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. As a teenager, I used to really crank that one up, little fob hat. <laughs> With the rare use of the electric slide guitar. That's true. That's a good point, yeah. We're back in the Element Well studios, so just talking about this. Uh, and I dwell on this because it is a common theme you hear from Democrats. We just need to go back to the tax rates of the 50s and 60s. It was economic bliss back then couple of other points in this article I wrote that I had forgotten about. Tax fraud was rampant. And here's why. No checks. No automated systems that we have today. Really was just a collection of people, clerks, accountants, hand-checking every tax return. It was easy, fraud was, because there were no sophisticated cross-checks. Just, just think about this. Just a simple validation of your income against your W-2s and your 1099s, all of which are sent to you as well as to the IRS. That's like one of the first things the systems do. Hey, does that match up or come close? Didn't have K-1s. Think about income from interest-bearing accounts, checking accounts, all sorts of other sources of income, all that information's provided to the IRS, and they cross-check that against your return. That didn't exist. Imagine how easy it would be if that were the case. Even those that incur capital gains from the buying and selling of stocks and other assets, they didn't exist back then. There was no reporting. They just checked out your pencil-prepared return, no computers we're preparing tax returns. Just a sea of people with calculators. Not like we have today. Ad machines. Remember that? Oh, Had to yeah. pull the handle down. I mean, I don't remember using them, but I remember the cartoons of various... I mean, I think it was three or four different cartoon characters along the time with a mouthful of cigarettes and a little green visor <laughs> and a tape just spitting out of the machine. That's right. And the uh, the band on the shirt sleeves oh, yeah. to keep it out of the way. <laughs> you also it Daffy Duck that did that? I think that's right. With the big bill with all the cigarettes coming out of it. I do remember that. It It's just such a apples-to-oranges comparison. Adjusted for inflation... Evidently, I did the math on this 
back then. Adjusted for inflation, the top rate of 91% from the 50s would apply to income over $3.4 million today. And this is like seven or eight years ago when I wrote this. In 1958, think about this, Rhino. In 1958, 10,000 taxpayers paid the top rate. That's 2% of all taxpayers on income over $400,000. Today, and this was seven or eight years ago, it's even more so uh, in 2023, but today the top 2% which was 2.7 million returns when I wrote this, paid 50% of total taxes. So 10% or 10,000 taxpayers paid the top rate, which was 2% of all taxpayers. 2%. And of of all income, today they pay 50%. The middle class based on this math from the, the tax rates of the, of the 50s, paid way more of the tax burden than they do today. We've shifted progressively through the years, no secret about that, more of the tax burden to the higher incomes. That just never gets, it never gets conveyed, never gets communicated, never, never enters the conversation. Just unbelievable. Uh, how things have shifted through the years. So the liberals, of course, want to return to the tax structure of the 50s, but you'd have to eliminate Medicare, Medicaid, SNAP, EITC, child tax credits, exemptions, and return to the old, because all of those reduce the middle class's tax burden. I was asked uh, on the ceasefire tax line, I don't know who it was, it asked how many people, how many households received EITC credits uh, last year. 31 million. 31 million households received earned income tax credits. That's the government sending money to them. That doesn't even take into consideration all the child tax credits and things like Medicaid and SNAP, that's food stamps, all the other various exemptions and deductions, all of which are figured into their tax calculations such that they don't owe anything. In fact, many get money back. So I just don't want to hear this argument anymore about, we need to go back to that. And I'm not jumping on Mike here. He, he asked a legitimate question. I want to be clear about that. And I, and I know he was phrased as more of a question than an opinion. Uh, but when, when you hear that argument, it's just simply not true. It's like everything else. It requires some nuance. And that's what I'm trying to do here is, is just share some of the nuance. Well, not exactly. I think there's a there's this view that we just had this huge population of people back in the 50s that were paying 91% effective rate. That's just totally false. <laughs> Virtually nobody was. With all the the fraud, honestly, and borderline fraud, avoidance, because it was so dang hard to figure out all the passive income rules and stuff, it's just crazy. On the ceasefire tax line, Buddha Judge is pitiful talking about his his clearly uh, avoiding visiting Ohio, the rail disaster there. Where is he? He's too worried about the diversity in the construction trade. 
I worked on Apache, says Rhett and Ridgeland, talking about Apache helicopters. Those things don't miss. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought as well. If we haven't recovered them because we didn't shoot them down, says Ronnie, what if we haven't, pardon me, what if we haven't recovered them because we didn't shoot them down? That's an interesting thought Ronnie from Summit offers. The weapon systems are turning woke also like the Dems want the military. You mean they don't work very well? I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, I would just be curious as to hear an explanation. Why did it miss? Was there some sort of error on the part of the system? The person who fired the ordinate? And some other factors that caused it to miss? Don't want to dwell on that too much. I just found that rather interesting and in the modern era of incredibly precise weapon systems. Because how many times do we hear the term surgical strike? It was a surgical strike. Well, not in this case. Didn't, doesn't sound very surgical. Philip in Walthall County says animals are dying around the area from the FOS gene. Is that a, is that a chemical? That's what happens when the, uh, I forgot the name of the chemical you listed off, but it's the main chemical. When that burns, it produces FOS gene gas. Okay. And that's, I assume, is toxic. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, that was one of the gases used in World War One in trench warfare. F-35 helmet costs 400000 bucks. has integrated eye-tracking hardware. That's, that's, again, that's what I thought. That's on the ceasefire tax line. They can look below and behind the aircraft just by turning their head, and it's projected on their HUD display. Yeah, I mean... In fairness, I don't think it was an F-35 that was sent. Wasn't it a 22? I thought it was a 22. I could be wrong. Which would be the previous generation stealth fighter before the F-35. I'm pretty sure these kinds of weapon systems existed back then. Maybe not quite to that level of sophistication, but enough that you could lock in on a target and hit a button and it's going to track it and hit it. Oh, yeah. I'm 61, have a real job, and have made well over 100000 bucks since COVID delivering people's groceries and food. Just send them in a check. Just send in a check. Talking about taxes quarterly. I hear you, Mike. Mike in Oxford. It's a great illustration of the point. Mike, that would be an example of, of uh, gig work. Every time you deliver groceries, that's a gig, essentially. But I'm assuming, yeah, so Mike says, I send in a check quarterly. Right, he's paying estimates. And it's painful, isn't it, Mike, writing that check every quarter, <laughs> sending it in? Larry McGee says, I feel your pain. Gerard, my brother and I are farmers. The tax man hits us hard. You know, I hear you, Larry. And you would feel a little better about it if you didn't see this massive waste and fraud and abuse. You feel a little bit better about it. But unfortunately, we do see massive waste and fraud and abuse. And it just it's aggravating. It's maddening when you see it, honestly. COVID started to come on the radar in 2019. If we look at it from a young voter's perspective, they have been getting free money for years, for four years. The new voters for this election cycle were 14 years old, and that's all they know. That's, that's a good point. If you expect to take that from them via the vote, that's a tall hill to climb. I agree. Unfortunately, people have gotten accustomed to this helicopter money, and they're going to vote for whoever keeps on dropping it on them. We're taking a break right here. We got another segment and then Representative Hank Zuber. It's so awesome. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. So uh, our friend Jeff Smith just texted me said it was an F-22. But still, though, the guidance systems ought to be sophisticated enough, I would think, so that one shot would take a balloon down. And again, I'm no expert on this, but just just based on just watching, like I said, all these reports from 30 years ago, all these precision strikes and abilities of these laser-guided ordnance and Again, this term, surgical strike, over and over again. Now, I I agree those targets weren't always moving, but that shouldn't make a difference with this kind of technology. That's why I come back to the price point. It's a $400,000 missile. One of the justifications for the outrageous spending on some military hardware is it's designed to be reliable in battle. Right. Well, That's what I thought. this is showing a weakness in that particular system. Hmm. Well, you I, would expect something that cost $400,000 to work on the first try. I, I agree. I mean, if you go out and buy a Lamborghini, you expect to be able to sit in it and crank it up. That would make sense to me. It's I, I, I simply said there may be a, a rational, valid, plausible explanation. That's fine. I just hadn't heard anything. All I've heard is that it missed, and that got my attention. That That's the reason for my commentary. Mo says, Gerard, they do pay more taxes for using the roads. It's called a fuel tax. Good point, Mo's talking about Elizabeth Warren always clamoring that uh, the wealthy in our country, they get more government services like the roads, <laughs> therefore they need to pay more. The... Uh, the skewing of the income tax burden to the upper incomes to her is just unfair. We need more people not paying any taxes. The 50% of the households in this country that pay nothing, there's just not enough. We just need to run the whole country off the billionaires, the 700 billionaires. Except if you confiscated, I did look this up the other day, if you confiscated every penny of their wealth, not that it's in cash, because it's not. The vast majority of it's on paper. It's held in stock, which they'd have to liquidate, which means all those companies would fail, and the economy would crash, but they don't ever talk about that. You had to run on the stock market like that? And all the, the big holders of those equities started liquidating their equity in those companies to pay their taxes? I don't know that folks understand, <laughs> certainly in Washington, what that means to the economy, the, the downstream deleterious consequences. But if you confiscated every dime, it would fund the tax income that the country, that the nation, the federal government receives in a year, it would fund half of it. Take all the trillion, not trillionaires, the billionaires' wealth, all 750 of them, just go get it, confiscate it, send it to the Treasury. That cover our expenses for a third of the year and cover half of our income. Just simple math. 
They they own about two point four trillion dollars of assets. Our income is about four point two, and our spending is six. That ain't hard to figure out. That information's widely available. They never, never communicate that. They don't want to. Doesn't fit the narrative. Doesn't get people fired up. Yeah, go take those billionaires' money. It's just unbelievable how just simple math never frames these discussions. I'm not sure Joe can do it uh, to start with. And Elizabeth Warren, she's just giddy over the any idea that would that would uh, reduce the wealth of the most successful in society. And, of course, all they want to do with it, with it is create more programs. <laughs> it's not like, yeah, we're going to go take all that and pay our deficit, our debt down and eliminate our deficit. No, we just want more programs. That's all they want. Everything else will stay level. It's just we got to figure out the sexuality of the poison dart frog in the rainforest. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We have to teach a tribe in Africa how to wear shoes. <laughs> That's exactly right. The plane had malfunctioned at the junction, says David from Bruce. <laughs> Matt Tupelo says, needed Maverick in that F-22 <laughs> to take the balloon out. <laughs> well, it was Viper in that balloon, wasn't it, that was eluding. <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean ev- evading, not eluding. I'm getting too fired up here. Uh, Thomas and Greenwood says a $400,000 missile has at least 200000 to Wicker's buddies. Who would be his buddies? Said they are heat-sinking missiles and the object was not producing enough heat. Okay. Well, maybe they chose the wrong weapon. Should have known that. Couldn't you? T- aren't there detection systems for that? I thought there were. I mean, not to get too in the weeds, we only have 30 seconds left, but the, the intelligence abilities of the U.S. military can tell you which way the door opens before they enter a room. Therefore, I would think it would have the airborne uh, aircraft, I should say, would have the ability to detect whether or not an object, an airborne object, is emitting heat. And they would use the proper weapons. For that. If it's not heat emitting, okay, use another one. Coming right back with Hank Zuber. And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of the program, Midday Super Talk Mississippi on this hump day. Joining us now, Representative Hank Zuber, a member of the House of Representatives for District 113. That uh, covers Jackson County. Representative Zuber, good to see you again, sir. Gerard, good afternoon. Good to see you, too. Good to be with you today. Yes, sir. What time are you guys gaveling in today? We go in at 2 p.m. this afternoon. I think the Senate's at 10 these days, right? You guys are at 2? It that- was, yeah. They came in at 10. As you know, last week was the uh, committee deadline to take up House bills, and uh, 
It was, uh, needless to say, it was hectic. <laughs> Good way to describe it. Moving. Yeah, and, and fast moving. But this week should be a little bit slower. Uh, the Senate bills are coming in. I think Speaker Gunn has referred all of the Senate bills to the House committees. Um, so it's uh, it'll pick up next week, but uh, probably a little bit slower this week. Troy. You chair, of course, uh, the House Insurance Committee. What sort of bills are you guys working on? What, what uh, passed out of your committee that went to the Senate, and what are you dealing with that came over from the Senate? Well, one of the bills that I would like to talk about was um, House Bill 1299, if I may. <clears throat> And if I can give you, if I can back up and give you the uh, historical context of that bill, three or four years ago, the speaker came to me and, and gave me and, and Vice Chairman Kevin Ford and the Insurance Committee the charge of trying to find out why uh, pharmaceutical expenses and, and the state health insurance premiums have gone up year after year. And uh, what happens is that we will give a pay raise to state employees and the teachers on one side, and then the health insurance plan and their premiums go up on the other side. So it's like a give and take. So we started looking into it about three or four years ago, and we found out that the number one cause for the increase in the uh, in the premiums were pharmaceuticals. Um, they were increasing approximately 20%, 20% year over year. And uh, so we started looking into it, and uh, uh, we came up with uh, House Bill 1299, which requires transparency and sunshine on PBM contracts. Okay. So, I, and I know that was an uh, issue that got a lot of debate in the Senate in particular. Not so sure about the House, but can you explain a little bit what, uh, for the benefit of our audience, Representative Zuber, the whole concept of PBMs and how they fit into the ecosystem of pharmaceuticals? Yeah, I'll be happy to. Now, if you remember, uh, on the Senate side, they were dealing with a, uh, a guaranteed or a mandated uh, dispensary fee. Okay. And so it, it's it's quite different, um, Gerard, on the uh, on the House side. Uh, all we did on the House side with with twelve with House Bill twelve ninety nine was just require that the details, the specifics, the numbers, uh, of what the charges are with for pharmaceuticals uh, will have to be exposed and become public. Um, hmm. It's very hard. We are of the opinion that the uh, uh, right now it's very hard to track the money and the rebates between the manufacturer and the PBMs, the pharmacy uh, benefit managers. So we want to kind of we want to be able as public policymakers, we want to be able to track that money, track those rebates to see who is getting what, and and you know how much making sure that we're getting charged for what we're. Um, uh, contracting for, and just to be able to follow the money and uh, see where that leads us. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, uh, as you well know, it's very complicated, it's very convoluted, and if you try to sit down and, and draw up kind of a flow chart of uh, <laughs> how the contracts and the money flows between all the parties, it, it, uh, it will have you kind of glazed over, honestly. It's pretty complicated. Well, I'll take it a step further. I did not realize this, but the PBM companies, they contract with other companies just to handle the rebates. Right. 
Yeah, uh, because the rebate the rebate systems are so complicated, and uh, in order for them to make sure they're receiving all the rebates they're due, they contract with third parties that have expertise in that. I, I got to tell you, my industry worked very much similar to that. We we had certain rebate programs. Uh, offered by the big tech manufacturers to their partners such as us and if you sold a certain level they would actually fund a resource on your staff to do nothing but track rebates I had a full-time person on my staff that dealt with Hewlett-Packard just to administer the rebate program so oh, that's amazing. Well, let me tell you something. It, it never, you know this, and I think you would agree with me. It never hurts to have sunshine and transparency on that process. Yeah. So oh, absolutely. It, it's a beginning. It, yeah. It, it's a beginning, and, and hopefully we'll be able to follow the money and and uh, see who's getting what and uh, uh, give us better information next year to do something. That makes makes total sense. What uh, what other bills do you see there, Representative Zuber? That are going to really get a lot of attention, uh, certainly those that came over from the Senate and those you guys sent over uh, to the House. The, these bills pertaining to the city of Jackson probably got the most debate, certainly the most contentious well, debate of any I've seen in a while. And let me tell you something. I'm glad you brought that up. I'll be happy to talk about that. Do you know where my home is for five or six months out of the year? city of Jackson. My home my home is at Morningside Apartment Complex, five or six blocks away from the Capitol building. Right. Whenever I talk to and have interaction with my uh, uh, co-tenants, who are the majority are African-Americans, you know what they want? They want us to do something. They want us to do something about the water. They want us to do something about crime. And, and that's the African-American citizens just at Morningside. So I can imagine what it's like within the entire, you know, city limits. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't know who my colleagues are listening to, but um, uh, all citizens, including African-Americans in Jackson, want something done about the crime and they want something done about the water. Well, uh, so what we have now, right, are a couple of bills. One where the state would assume control of the water system, and I think a board would be appointed, if I'm not mistaken, that would have uh, that purview. And then you've got the other, perhaps the most contentious of all, offered by Representative Lamar, which would expand the Capitol Complex Improvement District, establish a new judicial district. Judges would be appointed. So would prosecutors and, and uh, defenders. Uh, and also you would have uh, patrol would be done by Capitol Police for that expanded district, just as they do in the in the existing Capitol complex. I was in the gallery for that one and watched the amendments being offered by Minority Leader Representative Robert Johnson and, of course, uh, Representative Lamar, who presented the bill, and they were <laughs> sharing the podium there, going back and forth. And I saw many of the members rise in opposition to this legislation but what I came away with was that those who oppose it pretty much just distill it all down to it's an act of racism. And those that favor it trying to make the point, as you did, Representative Zuber, that we have a problem in our capital city. Leadership there seems to be failing. we got to do something. Well, and, and not only that, but, you know, I have an open-door policy. I will listen to anybody. That's how I learn. That's how I come up with, with legislation and, and uh, solutions to problems. What, uh, 
to the city of Jackson. You know, yeah, everybody needs money, but what is your plan? Yeah. Tell me your plan for the water problems. Tell me your plan to solve the crime issues that we have. I'm here. I'm ready to listen. Well, I saw the, the mayor. needs to be done. Yeah, the mayor was in the uh, in the South Gallery. I was in the North Gallery, and I was trying to hone in on his his facial expressions. And he was very stoical. He didn't he didn't really uh, show much emotion, much reaction. But of course, after it, he did. I, th- I thought he made some inappropriate comments that, uh, of course, got published. Um, but we'll see where this goes. You feel like this is going to pass in the Senate? I think it will. I mean, I think you'll have the same opposition in the Senate, but uh, whenever the final vote is taken, I think it will pass. But uh, obviously, that's one bill that has everybody's attention. Uh, Something that has my attention, and I don't know if it's been dropped. Uh, We don't have a deadline for this, but uh, it's the income tax. Yeah. I want to. I want to. I want to finish the job that we started. We have all this money. Okay. We have money coming down from Washington. We have money coming down from uh, D.C. We have tax revenue that is increasing. We have Go Mesa money. We have GCRF money. It's time to give some of that money back to the working men and women of this great state. And let's finish the job and get rid of the income tax once and for all. Right. I think we got to go, but I think you got some some folks in the Senate that have to be con- convinced of that, including the lieutenant governor, for that to become a reality. We'll see where that goes. Appreciate you coming on, Representative Zuber. Take care, sir. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Coming right back in the Element Well Studios. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios. It's middays, Super Talk Mississippi. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income growth and guarantees. And don't forget, Sports Talk Mississippi will be celebrating opening day. Opening day tomorrow. Tomorrow, February the 16th, that's because no other state does college baseball better than Mississippi, opening day for baseball, of course. Tomorrow, Sports Talk Mississippi will be live at Swayze Field in Oxford as the reigning national champions prepare to defend their title. You'll hear from players and coaches as we celebrate the opening of the college baseball season right here in the Magnolia State I got a feeling all the teams in Mississippi are going to make great runs during the, uh, this upcoming college of baseball season. Like I said, when uh, you make it to Omaha, it makes for a very long season. It seems like we were just there. 
yesterday. And looking at this year's teams in Starkville, Oxford, and Hattiesburg, on paper, they've got the potential to do well, but that's why you play the game. That's right. Should be fun. Looking forward to that. Something fun. Mike in Gulfport says, I don't understand why they couldn't hit a balloon with a bullet. Something smaller and cheaper. World War II was fought without expensive rockets. Chris and Summit, no doubt. Why not just shoot it down with 50 calibers? Jeff says, I bet the hot air balloon industry is suffering right now. <laughs> I have gotten a chuckle out of a, there's a sign going around social media, apparently posted outside one of these hot air balloon rental places. And it simply says on the sign that uh, balloon rides are shut down temporarily. <laughs> I'm surprised, says Louie from the 662, that the U.S. fighter pilots were allowed to use heat-sinking weapons over U.S. soil. Hmm. With all the hot air, huh? says, with all the hot air coming out of D.C., our representatives in presidential administration would be in danger. <laughs> Good one there. <laughs> Most AIM-9 Sidewinders use IR, but some are radar-guided. Got it. I would think about three rounds from a fifty caliber would take a balloon out, says Tom in Carthage. be one heck of a balloon if it could take three. Yeah. True. How about that? How about that? It would be kind of like all those theories about the uh, the bullet that took out John F. Kennedy, right? Oh man! Whoa! The magic bullet theory <laughs> took a that left and make a right. Any sense? <laughs> no. <laughs> what do they call it? The single bullet? Yeah. Or single bullet? The magic bullet. Yeah. Magic bullet. Okay, single shooter. Correct. I, I think that's yeah. That's always been in question. Was it one person or multiple? Did Oswald act alone? <laughs> Right, based on the what triangulation. What does the CIA know? Exactly. Interesting. My son, Randy in Starkville says, told his kindergarten teacher she was wrong, insisting there are five seasons. Spring, summer, fall, winter, and tax season. His <laughs> wife is a CPA. So true, Randy, and it is upon us. And yes, when you, when you decide to enter the profession of being a certified public accountant and you focus on tax preparation, exactly right. That's a brutal period of time leading up to April 15th. Typically, CPA firms have a big celebration after April 15th because it's it's over. Of course, March 15th, I believe, is corporate tax filing season, but that's nothing compared to individual tax filing Deadline date this year, of course, returns to April 15th. During COVID, you remember we pushed it out, July 1 or something like that. Well, I mean, they'd pushed it out before then, too, to like the 18th. Yeah. Got a couple days extra. A couple of days. Not like, not like this, though. Um, not like pushing it out three months. But uh, your wife, uh, or excuse me, your son would be right there, Randy. And God bless your wife for enduring another tax season. It is upon us, for sure. Uh, let's see. Uh, have you rescheduled Chris McDaniel yet? Asked Larry and Mize. Well, keep in mind, Rhino and I don't do the scheduling. That is, that is performed by uh, Alex, our content director. And it is my understanding that there is a, a tentative date and time for Senator to appear, McDaniel to appear on the program, that being next Tuesday. 
Mardi Gras Day. I don't know the time yet. But uh, we were informed of that by Alex. I think Monday she let us know that. The uh, Let's see here. Darren and Jackson says, That was a hell of a shot when Oswald was aiming at the back of Kennedy's head and hit him in the forehead. Yeah. My wife's like has a voracious appetite for all the information pertaining to the assassination of the president. And she has a huge library. Uh, and she really is quite versant on the subject. A lot of crazy stuff, oh, no yeah. doubt. And behind the scenes. Still fascinating, though, honestly, isn't it? And um, I mean, the Zapruder film, which is what most people associate with the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, where it's the 8mm film that has been now stabilized and viewed millions of times by millions of people. The fact that the Zapruder film that the vast majority of people have seen is not the full Zapruder film is a little mind-blowing, hmm. because that was in a day and age where society was more comfortable with soft censorship. So the frames of the president's head exploding due to an impact with a bullet were removed from that film before it was displayed to the public. Interesting. Now it's been re-released in all of its gory details. Yeah. Hmm. And that's one of those things you'll never forget where you were, those of us who were around, when uh, you heard that. 9-11, the um, space shuttle explosion, John F. Kennedy. Certainly the older generation, World War II, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Just those things that are permanently etched in your brain, where you were, what you were doing, when you learned about those tragedies. Interesting. I, I did want to clarify my statement about uh, the tax burden, the difference between the 50s and today. I felt like I wasn't very clear when uh, I shared that information. 10,000 taxpayers, which represents 2% of the total taxpayers during uh, the year 1958, in the year 1958, paid the top tax rate of 91% at the time. That's 2% of total taxpayers. 2%. Today, the top 2% is represented by 2.7 million taxpayers. 2.7 million. And that that is a testament to how much we've improved and increased wealth in this country. There are a whole lot more people at the top of the income ladder that have moved out of the middle section, the middle range of income. They, they pay 50% of all taxes. 50% are paid by 2.7 million people. Half the country is funded by less than 1% of the people. How does that work? That's what we have right now. Just but under one percent. Those are the ones that aren't paying their fair share. Ah, I got it. They need to pay more, and everything will just be fine. Right. Well, that's what Joe and the Democrats are telling us. All right. I want you to listen to what Robert Reich, as Rush used to say, Reich said. Can we please settle this debate already? This, by the way, was from yesterday. There is no labor shortage. There is a living wage shortage, a hazard pay shortage, a child care shortage, a paid sick leave shortage, and a health care shortage. In other words, if we just had more welfare, we'd have people working. That, that doesn't even make sense to me. 
Get out there and work so you can get more welfare. That just makes no sense. So I like, not that he reads my comments, of course, but I like to reply to his tweets. And here's what I said. There is an abundance of laziness. There's a shortage of people who want to work. We are abundant. We are absolutely replete with laziness. Those would be the folks in the recipient class. And that's driven by this egregious helicopter money funded by the producer class. We've essentially distilled our population and distributed it into, from a tax perspective, two groups, the producer class, the recipient class. And what we hear from Biden and the Democrats is, those producers got to pay more so they can give more of it to the recipients. That's exactly what Robert Reich is saying here. But that's what he attributes the labor shortage to. People just aren't working because they're not getting hazard pay. <laughs> they're not making living wages, whatever the heck that is. They'll, they'll never answer what that is. They're not getting government-funded child care or paid sick leave. Well, why don't we go back to the 50s? Coming right back. Stay with us. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We got Rush going on today here in the Element Well Studios. Tell the folks about uh, the, the Cadbury caper. Yeah, the Guardian out of England is reporting on this. Apparently, a British man named Joby Poole, age 32, broke into an industrial unit in Telford outside Birmingham <laughs> and walked off with 200,000 Cadbury cream eggs valued at $37,000. <laughs> he was captured by the police and he admitted to the robbery. What's he and doing? he is now going to be sentenced on March 15th. Unbelievable. Cadbury. 200,000 Cadbury cream eggs. That's a bunch. <laughs> now, if you looked at him with, through the eyes of shrinkflation, if he'd have done this about a decade ago, he'd have probably walked away with 100,000. Why is that? Just sheer space. He wouldn't have enough room. No, I got you. Cadbury cream eggs are about half the size they used to be. It's true. Uh, well, it's that inflation thing, you know. They've cut down on the portions. Well, they call that shrinkflation. Yeah, shrinkflation. <laughs> Is there any site that shows the percentage of wealth owned, earned, broken down by population percentage? For example, the top 1% owns what percentage of the nation's wealth? There, there actually is. And that's uh, the, the input that feeds the, the wealth inequality narrative. The top 1% own uh, roughly 30% of the total wealth. But keep in mind, this isn't cash. That's, that's one of the flaws in, in these uh, st statistical analyses such as this, is that this takes into consideration all of their asset holdings. Let's take an Elon Musk, who I think still ranks top in terms of net worth in the country. Not the world. I think he's maybe, what, two, three in the world, but top in the nation. But most of his wealth is on paper. It's his, it's his holdings in, in Tesla and SpaceX and the other companies in that conglomerate. 
and it's not really liquid, per se, meaning he couldn't just go dump it, get cash for it, at the rate that it's valued at while it sits uh, in, in those equity positions. So it's a little, little misleading. So the top 90%, top uh, 90% uh, own 68% of the wealth. The top 50% owned 96.7% of the wealth. Just doing the math in my head there. And then the bottom 50% owned 3.3%. And that really grinds the gears of the the liberals. But their, their solution to that, not that I think there's a problem. That's the first thing is, is that a problem? Is it, are you being hurt? If you're in that bottom 50%, is the top 1% who owns 30% of the nation's wealth? Are they somehow harming those in the bottom 50? Are they precluding them from economic mobility? Are they squashing any sort of economic opportunity that is available? I don't think so. In fact, I think they make it more. They create more opportunity. Take Use Jeff Bezos as an example. Don't agree with him politically on everything. But he's obviously amongst the top, I don't know, four or five in the country in terms of net worth. Often kind of vacillates with Musk in that regard, and, and Bill Gates, of course, in that league as well. But if you think about what Bezos has created... How many people have done pretty well using the tools he created and the platform and the routes to market? A lot of people, I'm sure you know that, Rhino, a lot of people, you may know some. That's their exclusive source of income, making and selling stuff on Amazon's platform. That's all they do. And some of them, it's not even their first go-round with utilizing another online tool to make money. Some of the same people that utilize Amazon for resales we're doing the same thing a decade, decade and a half ago on eBay. They've just found a better platform to do it on. That's a good point. Forgot about eBay. Heck, that's late '90s. I think honestly, the you know the first generation of that. It's obviously been enhanced substantially since then. But that's a good point. So, and the people who made all the technology that facilitated that, they did pretty well too. That's see, that's how it works. <laughs> that's the, I know the left doesn't want to admit that, but. These really smart people that produce these innovations end up being tools that others use to produce more innovation. And there's a lot of wealth generated along the way. But in that, in the case there, just whole new portfolios of, of uh, jobs and occupations that didn't even exist before all that. So... This whole notion and this concern about wealth inequality, when it's used in a nefarious way to influence public policy, yeah, I have an issue with that. I have concerns about it. I don't, I don't know that having an issue with it is a fair way to, to state it, but I certainly have concerns about that. No doubt about that. But if it's just because they utilize the tools at their disposal to generate value for society, in in exchange, they were financially rewarded. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's the way it's supposed to work. I don't want anybody out there that's got some ideas that could benefit society thinking, 
well, you know what, I'm not going to get compensated for this, so I'm just going to blow that off. Who knows what they might invent that could transform, in a positive way, society and create more economic opportunity or solve some of our most pressing problems. This gun-shooting crime problem, I believe, ultimately is going to be solved by some sort of novel technology that we can't even imagine. And I'm not talking about anything that's commercially available today. I'm talking about something that's not even in a, a twinkle in somebody's eye. It's going to be invented. I don't know what it is. I have no idea. I'm not that smart. But they are. That, that's just one thing. also saw where Tesla, you saw Musk announced, they're going to make their charging stations compatible with their competitors' electric vehicles now. So they're 18,000 charging stations. Just another example of the market at work, right? That's them trying to get out ahead of the charging cable war that you've seen in a microcosm of it with like cell phone chargers and stuff like that and the battles between companies over normalizing certain cables for certain uses. Right. Tesla's just going, we're not going to fight that. We're not going to deal with that. Instead of having all these proprietary connections and plug compatibility problems, it's it's kind of like the open systems movement that I witnessed in my industry uh, versus proprietary systems in IT. It's the same thing's going to apply here to electric charging. You know, it wasn't too long ago you didn't have all these these universal interfaces for all these digital devices that we that we use. But now, pretty much it's universal. We've adopted universal standards. And you don't have to concern yourself with, oh, no, I only got one of these kind, and it needs this proprietary cable and this proprietary plug and all that sort of stuff. That's pretty much been ended. What are you laughing about? Well, it's killed the adapter industry. That's true. <laughs> Used to need five adapters, end to end to end, to right. go from one to another. Right. That's right. And and look, back in the 70s and 80s, it was the IBM mainframe proprietary environment, and they fought. We don't need those open systems, because we're doing pretty well with all this stuff that only works with, with the other stuff we make. And when open systems, which just basically means that the software, the hardware, is not proprietary, that it's available and open to anybody to integrate with, exploded technology and opportunity and wealth. It, it was just destined to happen. Market at work. Yeah, Thomas and Greenwood's all upset because I said there's going to be some sort of technology that's going to protect us. I do believe this against these immoral, horrendous, depraved shootings like this nut in Michigan, the most recent one. I don't know what that is or how it will happen. I really don't. I just do believe that that's in our future. And that has nothing to do with gun control. It's not that. It's just protecting against nuts who's got guns. Unfortunately, there are far too many of them in this country. Also yesterday, we got a text on the ceasefire text line. I didn't get to it. That concerns this debate over Social Security, Medicare, where the President and all the Democrats are saying the Republicans are going to end it. And the reason I bring this up a lot is because, mark my words, this will be the front and center top issue in the 2024 election cycle. I tro totally believe that. They're going to thrust it to the top and keep it there. And they're doing it. And so yesterday, 
on the ceasefire text line, uh, someone texted, Ron Johnson, Rick Scott, and Tom Cotton, all Republican senators, of course, openly said they want to cut Social Security and Medicare. They didn't say talk about it. They said cut it. So please start just being simply honest. So please start just simply being honest. Pardon me. They are only three, but they said it. Goes on to claim that I'm lying to the listeners. Says, I listen to Fox News more than any other, and I heard them say it. You can't lie to the ones that keep up with the news. Asserting that I'm lying. I'll talk about that in the final segment. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbons. Come on! Let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Back with you in the Element Well Studios. It is middays. So let's see here. The um, so this assertion yesterday by the individual who texted us. It said that I was lying to the listeners. I don't think so. I uh, I shared just because the truth is inconvenient to your own personal narrative does not make it a lie. <laughs> and this person said, "You can't lie to me. I keep up with the news." <laughs> ah, so is it his job to keep up with the news? Because I'm pretty sure it's my job to keep up with the news. And with past transgressions from this Yahoo, they're not very bright when it comes to keeping up with the news. <laughs> Says, I know for myself and research before I speak. Right. So try it on someone who doesn't know you're lying. Stop drinking the Trump juice. So it's it amazing be... how some of the most ignorant have the most confidence in their ignorance. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm open, obviously, to debate on any anything we say here. If if you've got some information that that counters what is um, what is shared. That's fine. We'll we'll take a look at that. But in this case, Senators Scott Cotton and Johnson have not called for abject ending permanent termination of those programs. What they've called for is a sunset on um, an interval. Five years has been the number suggested on those programs so that they're just not on autopilot headed for the dumpster because that's where they are while they're on autopilot. That dumpster's out there. The end of that bridge, which has just fallen into the water and the vehicle crossing over it is going with it right down into the water. (laughs) Yeah. So calling for a sunset to a program or programs that are failing financially doesn't mean permanently ending those programs. It just means, hey, if they're worth keeping around, 
which I think most people would argue they are, let's figure out a way to refund those and put them on firm financial footing so we don't have to worry about this. But right now, we just keep kicking the can down the road. Well, let's, let's clear the air. Let's hear some audio from a politician talking about this very thing. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's Joe Biden in 1995 saying the same thing. I remember that. And that, that, that video, of course, has surfaced. Because you and I keep up with the news. We've seen this quite a bit. It's gone viral. And, and it is a, a clear contradiction in what he says today. So basically what he's saying is the same thing that Senators Johnson, Scott, and, and um, uh, uh, Cotton, Cotton are saying. Yeah, I mean everything. So that we can gather up around the table, put all our brains together, and figure out a way to put these programs on a sustainable path. I don't know what's so hard to understand about that. So, no, Willful we're not, ignorance. We're not lying about it. That's what's been suggested. By the way, I've read their written plans. That's what they say. The only plan that's come out of the Democrats is we got to lift the cap and keep taxing people. We got to make those wealthy folks, the folks at the higher end of the income spectrum, they just got to pay more. Oh, by the way, you're not going to get any more. In fact, we're going to means test the program so that you won't get anything. You're just going to pay for everybody else's retirement. And they'll deem that as fair. You pay more, considerably more, your entire working life on every dime you earn. But when you get ready to retire, sorry, you don't get any. But all these other people who paid far less than you did, they'll get the largesse of your contributions. That's what they're proposing under the guise of fair. That's all the only plan they have. So we just consequently kicked the can down the road. Because the willfully ignorant will buy the BS from the liberals and the Democrats saying that Republicans are trying to take away their toys. Absolutely true. Thomas says we should end payroll tax deductions and force people to actually just write a check to pay those in. Of course, the programs would immediately falter and crash because people would cheat and they wouldn't send their money in. That's why it's a Unfortunately, it's a um, it's a mandated deduction by law. It comes out of your pay. That's the way that works. Well, we are uh, out of time here today, but back in the Element Well Studios again tomorrow. We appreciate you joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Talk Mississippi Media Production.